Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to the Determined Truth Podcast. Uh, this series of podcasts, we're going to be studying the Gospel of Mark. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I encourage you to do so by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth Podcast. Gospel of Mark begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Ancient writings normally begin with a formal dedication, describing the purpose of the book, or with an opening line, treating the first subject discussed. Mark begins his gospel with this statement, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 1.1 is probably more appropriately designated as a title of the work, and not necessarily the first work. And this title, Mark tells us, I'm telling you about the beginning uh, just as Jesus, just as Genesis begins with R.K., the, in Jesus we have this beginning, this this new beginning, this this new creation. But it's the beginning of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. For Mark, the good news is a person. The content of the gospel is the person of Jesus, who is the Christ and the Son of God. Now, in the ancient world, we have in the biography of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor of the Roman Empire, the statement that it's the birth of Caesar Augustus. The good news of the birth of Caesar Augustus, a son of the gods. Mark writes his gospel with the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of the God. It's perhaps quite likely that Mark began his gospel with this political statement that in the birth of Caesar Augustus, you have the good news of the birth of a son of the gods. But with Jesus, Mark says, we have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of the God. I find it interesting that oftentimes we talk about how we have to keep religion and politics separate. Something, of course, that would have made no sense in the ancient world, but it certainly would have made no sense in light of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark begins with this heavily politicized statement, Jesus is the, is the Son of the God. Now, the title Son of God is often used by Christians today to say Jesus is God himself or Jesus is God in the flesh. But really the title of Son of God is, is used in the scriptures first off as a title for Adam. Genesis chapter 5, Adam is called the Son of God. But even in the genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, uh, Adam is referred to as the Son of God. It's also a title, however, for Israel itself in Exodus and Hosea. Israel, the nation, are, are referred to as the Son of God. So Jesus' title, the Son of God, is probably more a, a title expressing that he is the true son of Adam or the true, the true human, the, the, tr the true Israel, more than it means that he's actually God's son incarnate in the human flesh, which of course, uh, that's certainly true, but not, I think, what son of God means. It goes on to say in verse 2, As it was written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'll send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. His diet was locusts and wild honey. He was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Wilderness is an important theme in the scripture. 
It often expresses a place where God's people go to, to suffer, uh, but it's often a place of, of testing and tribulation and trials. But it's also a place of God's revelation. God gave Moses uh, the Ten Commandments in the wilderness. But John begins, or the Gospel of, John, of Mark then begins, with a reference to the prophecy of Isaiah the prophet. When we look carefully, we find out that this is not just a, a, a reference to Isaiah the prophet, but actually a composite of, of three passages. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Exodus 23, verse 20, and Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now remember, if chapter 1, verse 1 is the title of the gospel, then Mark chapter 1, verse 2 is really the first verse, uh, uh, the, the opening line of the gospel. And it begins with a statement that so often is read by uh, us in our churches uh, in, in kind of a soft way. Um, a voice is calling, clear the way of the Lord in the wilderness. But in all reality, when we read this verse, we must shout it out loud. You see, Isaiah chapter 40 marks the second part of the book of Isaiah. In the first part of the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39, the prophet announces to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom especially, that they have gone astray, that they have failed uh, to, to be faithful to God's covenant. And as a result of their failure to be faithful to God's covenant, just as the book of Deuteronomy promises the Israelites, God's going to send them out of the land. God's going to send them off into what's referred to as the exile. And sure enough, the Assyrian Empire comes in in the early part of, late part of the 8th century BC and sends away the northern tribes of Israel into captivity. But chapter 40 then begins the second part, which begins in verse 1 of Isaiah 40. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You see, Isaiah 40 begins this pronouncement that God's going to restore his people someday, that as he allowed them to be sent off in exile, so he will also bring them back. But when God brings Israel back, note it says, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. God is coming back. You see, the Gospel of Mark begins with this great pronouncement that it's God who is coming back to the land. He's restoring Israel, but it's, it's the restoration of God and his presence to the land. Now, the second prophecy in the book of uh, in uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 2 is a reference to Ezekiel, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 23 verse 20. Uh, in Exodus 23, it speaks of God's guidance for Israel during the time of the first Exodus, uh, after God had led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, so God guided them and protected them and provided for them. So also God will provide and protect this new Israel, this new uh, um, restoration uh, to the land uh, through Jesus. But the third passage that's quoted here is the book of Malachi. In the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. He will clear the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messengers of the covenant, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now we often stop there because Malachi 3, verse 1 is what's quoted by Mark here in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, 2 through 3. But note Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. It says, But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. See, God is coming back to the land, but by quoting the book of Malachi, he tells us that he's not just coming back to the land, he's coming back to the temple. Yeah, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But he's not just coming back to the land and coming to his temple, he's also coming in judgment. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
Now, this idea of Mark, that Mark is letting us know that Jesus is God coming back to the land, that he's the Lord that the book of Isaiah has told us about, um, but that he's coming back to his temple is going to be very important. When we get to chapter 11, we're going to see this really obscure verse that all of a sudden Jesus enters Jerusalem and he went to the temple and he, he looked around and because it was late, he departed for Bethany. And we're like, well, why would Mark even tell us that Jesus went in the temple if he's not telling us what he saw when he looked around? And we'll remember at that point when we get to Mark chapter 11, this reference here from the book of Malachi, and it'll help us uh, understand uh, this most significant uh, uh, statement. Now, John the Baptist, it says, well, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Like Elijah, John is identified with the wilderness. The wilderness, of, again, is a place where God brings deliverance to his people. It's a place of inaugural events. Uh, but John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. The word repentance means literally to, to change one's mind, to alter one's understanding. But it's a repentance uh, for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, that reminds of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, uh, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, says declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws within them, and on their heart I will write them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The book of Isaiah, uh, the book of Jeremiah is telling us about this time, then God's going to come back and make a new covenant. That new covenant will bring about the, the forgiveness of sins. Now, John, the description of John the Baptist, of course, is he's in the garb of a prophet. He's wearing the clothes of a prophet. He's eating the food of a prophet. Of a prophet. He's like Elijah who opposed, who was opposed by Ahab. He's, but also like Elijah uh, when he was renewed the covenant on Mount Carmel. Now, locusts were permitted by Jewish dietary regulations, and they were a high source of protein. But it's more significant that John is being described as a prophet. Now, we begin to go look at the baptism of Jesus. It says in verse 9 that Jesus came and was baptized by John in the Jordan River, and we immediately go, wait a minute, what's going on? We know that Jesus is the true son of Adam. He's the true Israelite. He's the son of God. He's a true human. But we also know the gospel story, and that is Jesus never sinned. Jesus has nothing to repent for, and if John is baptizing with a, a baptism of repentance, then why is Jesus being baptized? In fact, later apocryphal uh, uh, writings, early uh, early Christian writings, second and third centuries that uh, uh, kind of go off on various tangents and uh, realize that the, the problem created by this, that Jesus is being baptized with, with the baptism of repentance, and they, they try to uh, uh, portray Jesus as being dismayed, like, like he didn't want to be baptized by, by John the Baptist. But this question, you know, why is Jesus being baptized? Well, the answer is simple. Jesus is being baptized because he is taking on the role of Israel. And for Israel to be restored, for Isaiah 40 verses 1 through 3 and the other prophecies to be fulfilled, for God's people to be, to be restored back to the land, they must repent. And this, of course, comes from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, uh, verses uh, uh, 1 and following, which is perhaps one of the most significant Old Testament passages that there is. Uh, where the book of Deuteronomy tells the Israelites that when you disobey this covenant, God's going to send you out of the land. And after he sends you out of the land, uh, and, and, and you're in this foreign land, and, and then you remember, uh, Deuteronomy 30 verse 1 says, and then you call to mind in all the nations where the Lord God has banished you. And verse 32 says, and you return to the Lord, or repent. 
return to the Lord your God, and you obey him with all your heart and your soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So this great promise of restoration that that God's going to bring this restoration of Israel uh, and, and, and the restoration of all of his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the Israelites uh, throughout, it, it is only going to happen when Israel first repents. So Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything uh, of his own, but he's repenting for the nation of Israel. Now, this imagery of, of coming up out of the water, of course, in the Old Testament, it was Israel who was coming up out of the water. In the, in the Exodus, they led through the Red Sea. Uh, and now it's Jesus coming up out of the water. Just as Israel was founded as a nation when they came out of the water of, uh, of the Nile, of the Red Sea, uh, so also, uh, and then went off into the desert, so also Jesus now is coming up out of the water and is becoming the, the new Israel. Interestingly, the Apostle Paul refers to Israel coming up out of the water in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 uh, as this reference to their being baptized. For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, he says in chapter 10, verse 1, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Jesus' being baptized is, is, illustrates that Jesus is taking on the role of Israel, fulfilling the, the, the covenant promises of God uh, to the people of Israel. So he's taking on Israel's guilt. Now, when he does this, uh, three things uh, uh, happen, it says in, verse, uh, uh, in Mark chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. First, the heavens were opened. The heavens uh, being opened is an apocalyptic event. Uh, it, it inaugurates the, the, the long-returning, uh, desired return of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1 says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. So the Israelites were waiting for this time when the heavens would be opened up and when the Spirit of God will return. Uh, this is what Israel was longing for, the heavens to be opened and for God to descend. The second thing that happens, of course, is that the Spirit indeed descends. But it descends not just upon Jews, but into Jesus. And then the third thing, of course, is that there's a voice, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This beloved Son imagery, again, reminds of, of chapter, uh, the second psalm. Uh, where Israel's king is declared to be God's son. You are my son, in whom I'm well pleased. So the baptism of Jesus then serves as the authorization of Jesus' ministry. He is now God who's coming back uh, from exile, bringing back the people uh, of Israel, restoring Israel, and fulfilling God's promises. But not only that, he's also Israel himself. He's living out the life of Israel and carrying forth the promises that God has made to Israel. But first thing that must happen is that Israel must repent. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.